Over the years, there have been many secular songs that have been written about love. And during the first service, it was popular for me to sing a line of some of them, so we will probably continue with that. The Supremes, they sang, Stop in the name of love. And then I don't go on with the whole song. And then the Beatles sang, All you need is love, love, love is all you need. And then Whitney Houston sang, I always love you, but I don't know the song. And then the Partridge family, I think I love you, so what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I did. Remember the Partridge family? I'm starting to give my age here. Yes, I know. And then, uh, well, uh, how about Aretha Franklin? Love is all, oh, now I forget it. We'll skip her. Bon Jovi saying, you gave love a bad name. Don't know that one. Meatloaf, listen to this one. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I'm glad I don't know that song either. So love is a choice that you make. And we tend to think of love as being uh, this feeling that we have. But love is really an intentional choice. In my wedding ceremonies, I actually tell the young couples, if you think that you're going to survive on feelings alone, then you're going to be wrong 95% of the time. Feelings just lead us in the wrong direction. And we've been studying 1 John, and today we're going to get into a familiar passage in chapter 4. And we're going to actually learn about God through this quality and characteristic of love. And I want to make three simple observations here this morning. And the first one is that love is how we know God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John writes, Dear friends, we should love each other because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has become God's child and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So sometimes we can have a very shallow view of God, and whenever we see love somewhere, we equate that with God. And while that would be a nice thought and a very comforting perspective, technically it's not really accurate. Because in the world, we try to flip things around here. And notice that John is saying, God is love. He didn't say, love is God. And in a subtle way, we change the meaning of John's words, just as in our culture, we try to kind of craft God into something that we want, something that he's not. And it's because we haven't read his word enough. It's because we haven't studied enough. And whenever you read a book, you learn so much about the author. And the same is true with the Bible. And a lot of how you come to know God is an outgrowth of your personal experiences and how you've been raised. But there are some people who think of God as nothing more than a harsh referee. And he's there with the whistle and he's just waiting for you to do something wrong so that he can blow the whistle and penalize you. Back when in my first church was in Burt's Corner, New Brunswick, and I actually preached in the Dorn Ridge Church of Christ. And I became the head of the hockey referees for that community. And I played in an industrial league. Uh, 
So I was trying to get referees. I would get some guys to come out from the city. But there were some days I would have to referee myself, which isn't good, refereeing the people you play against. But there was a team from Kingsclear that had this guy that he and I didn't get along very well. And he was always doing something wrong. So I would be refereeing the game, and he would high stick somebody. So I would blow the whistle. Number four, white. You're high sticking, and then he would start swearing at me. And I would let him go a little bit, and then I would say, okay, number four, white, that is non-sportsmanlike conduct, and that was another two minutes. And then he's going toward the penalty box, and he comes up with words I've never heard before to describe me. So then this is a 10-minute misconduct, and it continues. So then I finally just say, you're out of the game, game misconduct, and he goes to the dressing room. Well, eventually, it got to be so bad, I don't know why I always stuck myself refereeing their game. Nobody else wanted to do it. And he would do something wrong, and I would go over, and I would say, number four, white, that's elbowing, and he would just go directly to the dressing room <laughs> because he knew he was just going to get more and more upset about this. But some people think that that's the way God operates. He's like a referee. And there are others that think about God as if he's more of a detached inventor. He got things started, but he's not really involved in the world anymore. He started these things, but maybe he doesn't even understand how they operate now. And then there are others that see God like a grandparent, someone who gives good gifts quite liberally and who, from a distance, enjoys the grandkids and spoils them rotten. And then when it comes time, it just kind of leaves them, passes them back to their parents. Now, I confess to being guilty of this. My grandson, Seth, and I were in a sports card store, and I always come out with fewer hockey cards, and he comes out with more Pokemon cards. It just works that way every time. Grampy, Grampy, I need this. Grampy, Grampy, I need that. And then uh, last Sunday, I even gave him some cards that are older than his parents, so these are quite valuable, and he's going to sell them and get Pokemon cards. But he got baptized last Sunday. Got to be able to give the kid something extra special special on that day. But uh, every person starts off grandparenting saying, I'm not going to spoil this child. But when you hold that child in your hands for the first time, something just kind of clicks within you and uh, it, it happens. It just happens. But some people, they see God as this grandfather that just kind of watches from a distance, gives gifts, kind of watches you, but I don't think that's the picture of God that we have in the Bible. There's a tendency to craft the God of the universe into what we want him to be. In a sense, that's backwards and that's weird because we try to tell deity who and what deity is. And, and somehow try to say, well, this is who God is. And we try to control him. And there's a danger in that. Because if you try to fashion your own God, then what happens is you don't do the things you think he should. And, and all of a sudden, there is this temptation to say, you know what? Christianity isn't for me. I was fooled. I, I was duped in this. 
But let me say very gently, no, you weren't duped. What happened is that over time, whether it was friends or maybe family members, it could have been school teachers, it could have been co-workers, it could have been circumstances or life events, but they caused you to fashion a God that was very different from the one that was painted in Scripture. And we're all guilty of it. But I love the way Max Lucado said it. He said, God created us in our image, and we have returned the favor. And we have. We've tried to create God in our image. But God doesn't change. He's consistent. He's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He does not change. You can trust in that. And when you trust in him, it provides incredible comfort and confidence. And now let me share with you what the Apostle Paul hopes that you will come to know about God, that you will know that he is a loving father. And you know, that's tough for some of you because you didn't have a loving father, a, a good relationship with your father. And so it's going to be difficult to understand. But turn to the pages of the Bible and you begin to see a picture of what God is really like. And it provides comfort and confidence. So here's something interesting. Like I've learned that in the Old Testament, God is described as Father just 15 times. Now, if you look at your Bible, you see that the Old Testament is huge in comparison to the New Testament, and yet only 15 times in all those pages is he described as a Father. But then you go to the New Testament, and this is where we see the concept of who God is defined and described for us. And that's that concept of being a loving and a personal father. And that is referred to 245 times. So do you see what's happening here? This is a distinctive New Testament revelation that through faith in Jesus Christ, God becomes our personal father. And as a name of God, it stresses God's loving care. It stresses his discipline, his provision. And that's what we need to know. We need to know God as a personal and loving father. So how you come to view God will affect how you relate to him. How you receive him will determine how you respond to him. But in chapter 8 of our scripture, John simply says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So in other words, love is like a passageway to understanding who God is. And you can't get to God unless you are loving people. Now the second observation is that love is how we see God. And we're picking up in verse 9. This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world so we could have life through him. This is what real love is. It is not our love for God. It is God's love for us. He sent his son to die in our place to take away our sins. So God the Father sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He sent him to basically take our place. He would sit in for us. 
And that idea of love, it originated with God. He loved us before we loved him. He loved us even before he created this world. He had us in mind. He knew exactly what was going to go on in our lives. And then Jesus coming to the earth was the only time that we actually see God in bodily form. And he came to be the full representation of who God is And he was made real. It was visible. And when we love others, we see that same love alive in our world. That's why leading up to Christmas each year, we're involved as the regional collection center for Operation Christmas Child, the shoebox campaign. And we fill shoeboxes with gifts for children in developing world countries. And the great thing about it is They can't reciprocate. There's no way that they can give back to us what we're giving to them. So we're giving it to them as an unconditional act of love. But there's a tendency for us to think, okay, there, check that off the list for this year. I feel good now and I can go on and check some of these other things off. But it's really meant to be a lifestyle, that type of love. And we need to be constantly looking around us and seeing the opportunities that are there for us to be able to act with that type of love and display that type of love in our world. Because we are meant to be the hands and the feet of our God in our community and in our world. So God showed his love to us through Jesus Christ so that in turn, we could show the same love to others. So please, don't limit that to Christmas. We have this tendency when Christmas comes along to kind of dive in and say, oh, it's a great time to do this. I'll have a lot of people approach me at Christmas time and they say, our office, we would love to support some family in need at Christmas. Can you give us the names of some families? And I'm thinking, do that all year round. We're willing to show love at a certain kind of time of year, but we should be as apt to do those things in February as we are in November or December, that it just becomes who we are. Now, sometimes you face things at home or maybe at work, and you're thinking, should I do this or should I do that? And you know what? Somebody else will take care of it. I'll just not get involved. Somebody else will do it. And whether that's a small menial task or whether it's some big task, it's amazing how often we think, well, that's not for me. Somebody else, they'll do that. Don't worry about it. Maybe something as simple as you're walking across the parking lot at your work or maybe out here in the church parking lot and you see some garbage on the ground and you think, well, somebody else is going to get that and you don't pick it up. I bend over for everything like that and it was ingrained in me when I was 13 years of age. I was working my first job at, it was at Maritime, not Maritime, Marco Polo Land. I have so many places in my past. Marco Polo Land, a campground in Cavendish, PEI. And the manager, he said to us, like, whenever you're walking around the campground, you're working. If I have you cutting grass three days a week like I am or working at the miniature golf course three days a week and you see some garbage on the ground, pick it up. Keep the place looking nice. So that has stuck with me. But I wonder how many times God has said, you know what, 
I put those things there as an opportunity for you to decide whether or not you're going to honor others above yourself and whether or not you're too good for that. Now, I wonder if we actually saw loving and serving as an opportunity to intentionally become the hands and the feet of our God. Just think how that would radically transform the way we approach each and every day of our lives. So love is how we see God. And 1 John reminds us of that over and over again, that Jesus came to earth so that people could see God and Jesus himself said this in John 14. He said, I have been with you a long time now. Do you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So why do you say, show us the Father? He was, he was getting frustrated because over and over again, he was displaying God in his life. Yet they were still asking, what's the Father like? Can you describe him to us? So regularly we see his reflection in the lives of others, allowing us to get a glimpse of God. I see God in, in so many different places. I see God in our local food bank, where a retired woman from our church serves faithfully each week, and where an athletic young woman from our church goes to help the older men, some of them are my age, but help them unload the big boxes of produce each week. These boxes are 50 to 75 pounds, and the guys are struggling with that. But I see God when a spouse remains in a loveless marriage and just hanging in there a bit longer just in case God might show up and heal that relationship. I see God in the love that parents show when they go outside the country to adopt a child and they will raise that child to know God. And I see God when a family rakes leaves or cuts grass or, or shovels snow for someone in their neighborhood that isn't able to do that on their own. And, and they're not doing it, looking for some type of reward. When Christ ascended into heaven, he made provision for everyone who placed their trust in Jesus Christ to be able to experience God. So love is how we know God Love is how we see God. And then thirdly, love is how we follow God. And now we're back in our Bible in verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us that much, we also should love each other. Now in the New International Version, that says ought to. So it literally means we're obligated, we're indebted, that we must do this. And no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made perfect in us. So you may be thinking here, hold on a minute now. It wasn't your second point that we see God, and now you're saying no one has seen God. And what we see in our world today is actually representations of the characteristics of God. He loved, so we love. So love is the response and once we know him, we start to see the way that he's working in the world. And then we begin to actively follow in his steps. I was talking to one young guy who very candidly said to me, you know what, man? I think I'm cool when they call me man. But he said, you know what, man? I, I try to walk in the light, but there are these moments when I just find myself hanging out in the darkness. And I said, well, you and the Apostle Paul have a lot in common because 
Look what Paul wrote here in Romans 7. I do not understand the things I do. I do not do what I want to do. And I do the things I hate. And if I do not want to do the hated things I do, that means I agree that the law is good. So he had a constant struggle. He knew the right thing to do. Yet he found himself doing the wrong thing. And he knew the wrong thing, yet he found himself doing that. And that's the struggle we have in the Christian life. So we have to understand that, yes, as we strive to walk in the light, as we strive to actually stay on that narrow path that God has outlined for us, that there are going to be times when we get off that path. And then we get on that broad path that leads to destruction. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but we want to stay on that narrow path that leads to eternal life. The New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and I think that was part of God's plan because Greek is a very technical language, and they actually have more words for something that we only have one word for in English. So in English, we say the word love, and we say that because we love something. And we use the same term to describe a variety of different emotions and recipients of our love. We say, I love hockey, then I love my church, I love pizza, I love my family. And, and, and it's the same word each time. And can you see the predicament that my family is in? Does he really love us more than he loves barbecue chicken pizza from John's Pizza? And, and that's hard to figure out because the exact same word is used for all of these situations here. But the Greek language that affords people the opportunity to have these different, different words that, to help us understand a little deeper in a more specific, detailed, and accurate wording. So here's a two-minute lesson on Greek. I had, well, I don't know how many minutes at Bible college, two years of it. And in the Greek language, there are four main words that we translate in English as the word love. And one of them is the word eros, and that describes a physical desire. It's a romantic love, a sexual attraction. So the word erotic is actually derived from this. So the way I like to describe this eros is, I love you if you look a certain way, if you make me feel a certain way, then I'll love you. And it's purely based on feelings, and it's a very conditional love. So it's based on fantasy, while true love is based on reality. It's based on feelings, while true love is based on commitment. But there are two other words in the Greek language that talk about love. And they're actually very similar to one another. And the Greeks had these words, storge, and then phileo. Now, storge was an affectionate social relationship. It was a close relationship. It carried with it the idea of working at that relationship and, and trying to make it into a great relationship. But the other term, phileo, that was used for a close friend or a love that you have for your immediate family. And you may be familiar with the fact that the city of Philadelphia in the U.S. got its name from this, the city of brotherly love. That's where the name was derived from. 
And that love is somewhere between conditional and unconditional. I love you because of what you do for me. I love you because you're part of my family. I love you because you're part of my inner circle of friends. And the phrase we have in English is, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. And because we're family, we go out of our way for one another. That's how we understand that type of love. But the fourth and final Greek word for love is the one that you know, and it's that word agape. And agape is an unconditional love. It's to be the defining trait of a Christian. And whether that other person can reciprocate and give that love back to you, we love with an agape type of love. I'll love you in spite of. It's not I'll love you if you do this, or it's not I'll love you because of this, but I love you in spite of this. So that's the end of Greek class. And now you're wondering, well, when John was writing, what word did he use to describe this type of love? And the word that he chose to use in 1 John is that word agape. In fact, it's actually the same word that Jesus used back in the Gospel of John in chapter 13. He said, I give you a new command, love, agape, each other. You must love, agape each other as I have loved or agape you. All people will know that you are my followers if you love, if you have an unconditional agape love for each other. So in other words, this is when you love for the unlovely. If you have an affection for those who were ignored or rejected, or it can be the vulgar, it can be the dishonest, it can be the greedy. And if you can bring yourself to love those people, the world just kind of sits up and takes notice. And they say, hey, there's something special going on in your life if you're able to show love in that way. So you, we wonder, like, why did he go to such extremes to talk so much about love in this chapter? Because John is using family language here. He uses the words beloved. He uses dear children. And the idea of dear children is family. And together, all of us who belong to Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. So he is very strong on this topic of love in this chapter because there was a group in that time, a very influential group called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. And they were claiming that you can't really know God unless he reveals himself to you specifically. So John writes here to contradict that teaching. And he says, you only know God through loving one another. That is the passageway to knowing God. The agape isn't necessarily a love of passion. It's a love of intention. It's getting out of your comfort zone. And it's saying, you know what? I'm not the greatest gift in the world, yet God loves me. So I, in turn, must love others. Here's what Cal Thomas said. He said, love talked about is easily ignored, but love demonstrated it's irresistible. And that's so true. You can talk about love all day, but if you don't show it to people, it doesn't mean a thing. But if you demonstrate it, it's irresistible to them. And when we walk in love, we live the kind of life that Jesus lived. And sometimes it goes against our nature, but love for others 
is evidence of Jesus living in us. And God modeled the way. Remember that God's love is always agape love. It's in spite of what we do. It's in spite of who we are. And God loves me in spite of the fact that I struggle with pride. He loves me in in spite of the fact that I mess up over and over again. And in spite of the fact that I'm not as good as you think I am. And you know what word was used for love in John 3.16, which says God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so whoever believes in him may not be lost, but have eternal life. God loved the world so much. God agape the world so much. It, It couldn't have been anything else. See, when you give up your one and only son and sacrifice him on behalf of other people, that is this type of love. When you let him pay for your sins and he lives a perfect life, it's the only word that could be used. The only one out of those four words that could be used was agape. So let me explain it another way. In Romans 8.15, Paul wrote, The spirit we received does not make us slaves again to fear. It makes us children of God. And with that spirit, we cry out, Father. So that's the relationship that we can have with our Heavenly Father, our loving, personal Father. And he gives you that unconditional love so that you can then pass that on to others. I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and listen to these familiar words about love. You've probably heard them at a wedding ceremony. It's Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it actually has nothing to do with marital love, but it's all to do with the love of God. So just bow your heads and listen as I read and listen to these words afresh. I may give away everything I have, And I may even give my body as an offering to be burned, but I gain nothing if I do not have love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag, and it is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not selfish, and does not get upset with others. Love does not count up wrongs that have been done. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over the truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, always hopes, and always endures. Love never ends. So you can open your eyes now. So today, with outstretched arms, Christ is looking at us from Calvary. And he's saying, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what situation you're in, I love you. And it's not... I'll love you if you do this, or it's not an I'll love you because, but it's I love you in spite of what you're doing. That's why in spite of our failures and flaws and our doubts and all our deformities and the sins and mistakes that we make, he still loves us. If you turn your life over to him, you're no longer a spiritual orphan, but you are adopted into his family and have all the privileges as the child of the king. If you've never turned your life over to him, make that decision today. Share that decision with us.